Most embarrassing moment. What's yours? Best question ever if you're trying to get to know someone. Problem is, all of you know my most embarrassing moment. So I was trying to think this week of, of a most embarrassing moment. Um, uh, and um, I thought of one. It was my third year in graduate school. I had been studying for the GRE to go to a, a PhD program. And I already knew Greek and Hebrew and Latin. And I had been teaching myself German. And you have to know German and French to get into this New Testament PhD program. And so I, have, I was teaching myself German. Does anybody know how to read and speak German? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. If the, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Somewhere in here. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Um, and so I found that the Princeton University was offering a course for scholars that were going mainly abroad, but also locally, where you could learn French in eight weeks. Now, for those of you that know French and you took French, like it, like it took years, it was just preposterous that I was going to learn this in eight weeks. But you had to basically in this course, this eight week course, you were going to learn French. And then you had to take an entrance exam to your university to prove that you had the ability to read that. So I was like, I don't have a choice. And uh, I have to take this to get into the PhD program that I want to get into. And so I showed up first day and I had never felt more out of place intellectually in my life. All of the people that were in these programs were going to these PhDs or fellows, Fulbrights, all these sorts of things. And there was me showing up, right, preparing to go and teach pastors. I was going to become a professor as well as be a pastor. And um, so we went around the class and the professor, who's wonderful, said, I want you to introduce yourself, tell people the PhD program you're going to and the fellowship that you're working on this summer. And a fellowship typically was they were connected to a university where they gave them money, where they were joining in a research grant. And I remember all the way at the end, there was a lady who, uh, gosh, I wrote this down. She was going to Hopkins, I believe, and she was was going to Cambridge, translating the Koran into a remote Indonesian dialect. And I was like, ha, that's great. That's fantastic. Person next to her going to Berkeley got accepted as a fellow with the Human Genome Project, which was just starting up in 1990. And I thought to myself, what is the human genome? What what is this, right? Another lady said she's staying here at Princeton, go Tigers, and she's an art history fellow and working with some famous museum that I don't remember. And this goes on and on. And I'm slinking in my chair because I don't want to tell them where I am working for the summer. So the guy next to me uh, says he's going to Harvard, and I shouldn't be saying this, but he's working on the arm that's going to come out on the lander that is going to Mars. And he said, we're going to Mars, people, and everybody clapped. And then he looked at me, and you, what are are you you doing? Uh, My name is Brian Jones, really glad to be here. Um, I am uh, finishing up... uh, uh, application either for Yale here at Princeton or I want to go over to University of Durham in England and um, he said where, where are you working this summer and I said I'm working at uh, Princeton Commodities Corporation and he was like what and I said the Princeton I'm working at the Princeton Commodities Corporation and I got a prestigious fellowship 
you know, commodities corporation where they trade futures, right? And I said, I got a prestigious um, fellowship this summer to work in their maintenance department. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> everybody laughed. I was like, I-, I have a baby coming in September. I'm cutting the grass for the summer, okay? That's what I'm doing. Anyway, I'm slinking down in my chair, and I'll never forget that moment. It was just, it was embarrassing, but everybody was great about it. Everybody's in the same boat. We're all broke, and um, but I loved it because the guy next to me who was going into the, uh, he was going to be an astrophysicist going to Harvard, was a genius. And my dad just really put this fascination for me of astronomy in me. And I, for that eight weeks, got more out of being next to him and asking him questions than I really got out of French. And here's what I learned. And you're going to find that this What I'm going to draw you right now is the key to the beginning to understanding the book of Revelation. There is, as and we all agree upon this, that there is the physical world, right? We've been talking a lot about this. And then, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we believe that there is a spiritual world. And every single astrophysicist, everyone that's into cosmology, even disciples of Jesus believe that the universe began at a single point of creation, and that is called what? Come on, the Big Bang, right? And the Big Bang initiated the creation of the physical universe. And the physical universe has been expanding at the speed of light, which is how fast? Come on. 186,000 miles a second. And it has been expanding from this moment of creation for 13.8 billion years. It has been going and creating, and it continues to expand. The moment, it's not a moment of creation. Those of you who are mathematicians and vectors and all this, it is a continuous expansion of creation that is continuing to this day. Um, This moment here in my crew drawing, uh, astrophysicists will call this the event horizon, or Stephen Hawking called it, the apparent horizon, the point at which, anyway. So where are we in this point of creation? We are on a little, completely insignificant little planet right here that we call Earth, which is rotating around a star, and that is in this utterly insignificant galaxy called what? The Milky Way Galaxy. And in the Milky Way Galaxy, we know that we have roughly 100 million stars in our galaxy alone. We have been able to observe now, they estimate roughly in all of these galaxies, now with the new telescope that went out, 
they're estimating that we're going to be able to, in the frame of reference, in the field at least, 200 billion galaxies. And so you tell me if each galaxy has roughly 100 million stars and there are 200 billion galaxies, how many potential stars are there in the universe? I'll give you the answer. A whole bunch, right? A whole bunch. The answer would be one septillion, which is a one with 24 zeros. That right there is a fraction of what's in the universe. Even the one septillion stars, we are going to learn, it's going to go on infinitely. Why is this important to understanding the book of Revelations? Because the book of Revelations begins by answering the question, What is in that box? What is on the other side? I just want to pause and say, I love our church community because we always want to be the kind of church that, honestly, if I was coming to church right now and I wasn't a believer, it would be like almost next to impossible to get me to believe in this hocus pocus crap that you guys believe in. That's the way I would view it. Like, I just, no, no. You can't convince me that this is what's happening. But I just want to tell you, for those of you who are atheists, whether you're watching online or here, the only difference between us, between disciples of Jesus and you, is one second. Just one second. You believe that this happened, it just happened. And what I'm asking for those of you who are atheists, is I'm asking you to be honest and I'm asking you to be consistent. So if your son comes home um, next weekend with a huge dent in the side of your car and you go out the next morning, you're like, what the heck? Where'd the dent come from? And your son says, I don't know, dad. It just happened. You need to understand that that is the same logic you are using for the universe. I just want you to be consistent, okay? I respect your intellect. I just want you to be consistent. No other part of your life do you admit just, it just happened, except right here. And that's because, honestly, you don't want for that right here to be real. So what's in here? Revelations chapter 4 tells us John the last living apostle here's a crude painting of him is on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea he's under the reign of the evil Roman emperor Domitian and Jesus comes to John and says I want you to get a message an apocalypsis an unveiling of this and this and so he says at the beginning of it in Revelations chapter 4 verse 1, 
After this, I looked and there before me was a door that opened up in heaven. John is here and he door opened so he can see what actually is happening over there. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. This door opens up and it says, once I was in the spirit. And there before me, for those of you who are wondering, what does heaven look like? There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, a rainbow that that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Circling, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder in front of the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. There were seven spirits of God. And also in the front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. And the first living creature looked like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Now when I read that, I was like, I don't even know what these describe and I got lost in the first sentence. So I found a picture that describes what's being described in these first verses and this is what it looks like. There's the presence of someone That is on a throne. Before them are four living creatures. We know these are the exact same creatures that were from the book of Ezekiel. And around that were 24 elders. Scholars believe these represent the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. And then there are angels and everybody's floating around on that sort of thing. I want to tell you that this is a symbol. This doesn't look like what heaven looks like. It is a symbol. It's infinity trying to express to us really like the the feeling and the essence of what this looks like. And we'll talk about this later. It's sort of like, imagine 17,000 years from now in the future, what everybody learns about the human body and the solar system and life and that sort of thing trying to explain to us in 2022 the science of it. That's what God, the challenge is, and trying, so he, he gave common images, these images, right? But let me just tell you, this is why this is the most frightening passage in the entire book of Revelation. And there are, there are some scary shiz we're going to look at. It's terrible. Terrible. But this right here is the most frightening. Here's why. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, basically everybody fell on their faces and followed suit and they worshiped him. And in verse 11, the most frightening verse in the Bible, you are worthy our Lord, we talked, if you were here over the last couple of weeks, 
Lord was a term that was used for Caesar in the ancient world to describe that he has ultimate authority, ultimate power. He sustained with supply chains and money and all that sort of thing, everything that went on, and he demanded ultimate allegiance. He was Lord. But what this picture is telling us is that this person on the throne is Lord. But that's not what's frightening. What's frightening is it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with some writing on it. It's an Egyptian papyrus from, from Cairo. This is what a scroll would look like. And so essentially those of you who have read the Bible and you've read the Gospel of Luke and you've read the book of Acts, it's the same book. Problem is if you're going to take a scroll and write on it the size of the book of Luke, you would take it from here to say this microphone right here. And so essentially it was too heavy. So you'd have to break it up into two books. So Luke Acts is one book, two scrolls. But the person on the throne has a scroll. In Biblical terms, whenever there's a scroll that's opening up, there is a stark message that's coming, a frightening message that's coming, a terror-filled message that's coming. Everyone in heaven wants to know, all of their eyes are worshiping God, but they're like, what's in the scroll? Is there anybody that can tell us what the heck is in that scroll? And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a a loud voice, verse 2, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Uh, A ruler would take a wax seal over this edge and seal it with his impression and signet ring. And if you would open it, you would be killed. So you would have to be worthy to open up the scroll to see what's inside. So the angel's saying, who is worthy and proclaiming? Because no one knows who's going to open up this scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth or could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. And then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, and he used the Greek word Nike, which we talked about last week, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. And so it says, then I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out of the world. Again, I was like, I'm really having a hard time picturing this. So I found this picture and this is what's being described. There is a lamb that looks dead that has seven eyes and seven horns, and it's laying next to the scroll. We'll talk about the imagery later. He went. The lamb took the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. He grabbed it. And when he had had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. 
And then they sang a new song. Yahweh who is on the throne is now joined with the lamb and they turned their attention from worshiping Yahweh to saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. Now I just want to pause here and say with this passage, whenever you open up the scroll, when it talks about opening up the scroll, I asked our team, could I say a cuss word? And they said, no. So whenever you open up a scroll, Jesus is opening up a can of whoop butt. Sounds better when you swear, but that's what he's opening. And what, what the image here is saying, you, the lamb, can take the scroll because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God. Now look at this. Persons from every tribe. Now he's using the language from a Greek slave market. And this is what we need to understand. The Bible does not shy away from the dirtiness of this language. The lamb dying takes people who are captive all throughout the cosmos. And look what it says. It uses the the slave language of going to the market and buying a Roman slave. And it says that Jesus went and bought all of us. I'll take him and her. I want her too. Him, give me. Give me them all. And it says... Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Every tribe, language. And what people think is, is that what this is referring to is over here to our little galaxy. And within our little galaxy there's this little planet. And within this little planet it's the Mediterranean world. And it's everybody from the Mediterranean world. But what people don't understand is. He's referring to all of it. People ask the question. What do you think will happen to our faith? And how do you think about it? If they find life. On other planets. And I just want to say. What do you think the chances are? There are no chances. This whole thing is life. The whole thing is life. And so he has purchased. on From our little podunk planet and galaxy. And then. 50 septillion light years going that direction. Someone here and here and here and here and here and here and here. Curios, Lord, over the whole thing. Now, why is that important? Why would you start the book of Revelations with pointing out that the Lamb is Lord over the whole shooting match? Because as we talked about at the beginning of the series, there were three issues that Christians were engaged in that caused the book of Revelation to be written in the first place. Number one, what was it? Empire or Jesus? Are you going to give your ultimate allegiance to the empire in which you're living in this tiny 
little land right here. Or the curios, the Lord, over the whole thing. Second, sexual immorality. They were worshiping other gods, which gave them permission to engage in sex outside marriage, to have a, commit adultery, homosexuality, all of that. And the third, their faith was lax. Now, let me just point out here. Why is it important, Kina? We're just going to, this is more jazz today. Just forget the script. Why is this important? Number one, empire over Jesus. No way for disciples of Jesus. I had a conversation this week with a vet. She served our, our country valiant, valiantly. Valiantly. She served our country admirably. <laughs> I don't like using the other word. And I, I, she was like, what did you talk about this past Sunday? And I said, well, I talked about how those of us who are disciples of Jesus have more in common with the Christian that is living in Syria, Iraq, or China than the atheist vet that lives in our neighborhood. And you could just see the visceral reaction of what? And I'm like, that is what got Jesus killed. That what you're feeling right now. Once you realize that Jesus is Lord over everything, Saying that Caesar is Lord over everything, this, this guy in this little podunk planet, in this podunk galaxy, it's ridiculous. Why would you say that? Now, it's still, he has the ability to kill you, so it still makes you scared, but it gives you perspective. It's sort of like when I was in elementary school, my, the best athlete in our school was my friend Brian Hunter. He was the greatest athlete I've ever seen in my life until we played all of the other elementary schools. And then I realized, oh my gosh, there are other athletes as good as him. And then I realized there are other school districts and there are athletes. And then I realized there are other states. Oh, there are other countries. There are other worlds. And you're scared of Domitian? Please. That's number one. Number two, sexuality. If Jesus is Lord, we look to him and him alone for how we're to utilize our bodies. It was more permissible to engage in freaky sexual stuff in the first century than it is in 2022. And so Christians were like, what's the problem? Everybody is doing all of this. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know everybody, everybody around you is telling you that it's okay to go to the market and have sex with a prostitute, have an affair, have, have homosexual, behavior, homosexual in, in, in relationships. I mean, on and on and on, all of these things. Everyone's telling you. But I'm telling you, as the curious of all of this, that it doesn't matter if you're in this galaxy or in this one. This is how we're going to express ourselves sexually. Every single time I mention this topic, inevitably there's some flame message that comes on social media. You need to know, I don't read these. I don't read these. 
So I got a flame message last week and it went like this. You thoughtless turd. You uncompassionate bigot. How in the world? It went on and on and on about all of these terrible things that I am because I said this. And I just want you to know I'm not saying this. He is. And if you think that your, I don't know, Brene Brown or your biology teacher or your grandmother has a better perspective on how to run this, I think, I think you're still wrestling with this. Whenever the Bible talks about sexuality and doing it God's way, it's always with heartbreak and compassion in his voice. Because he's speaking to all of us that are broken. The Apostle Paul says, you should avoid all of this. Uh, sexual immorality, blah, 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 blah. And then he says, oh, and by the way, this is what all of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified in the blood of the Lamb. And so you just need to understand from this perspective, this is not, he's not saying this from a perspective of, I'm going to blow you up. He's saying this from a perspective of love and grace. So this week, I want you to read Revelations 4 and 5. I want you to talk about it as a group, and I want you to ask this question. If this is true, why is this the most frightening passage in the Bible? If this is true, if he is truly Lord of all of this, how is this going to affect how you think? How you spend your money, your relationships, your time, your parenting, your job, your body, what you put into it, what you, everything. Because there are staggering ramifications. If he is your Lord and not just the savior for your sins so you can punch a ticket and get to heaven. If he's your Lord, what would your life truly look like if he was your Lord? Let's pray. We're so thankful, God, for this community of friends where we listen to your word, we wrestle with it. It's it's difficult. It's convicting. But we as a community believe that you are Lord. We believe that space that lots of people in our culture say is empty, it's unknowable, that it's filled with you. And then you came and left that to die for us because of love. Help us to live as if you're truly the Lord of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.